welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and the Madden America podcast this week is sponsored by Drs. Rani and Suraj Holistic Psychiatry and Mental Health Coaching. Are you ready to make a lasting change in your life beyond diagnosis? Then join Dr. Rani Bora's 12-month group coaching program named Beyond Diagnosis. Get access to one-on-one and group coaching sessions with her, tailored resources, simple but powerful practices to shift your state of being, peer support, and so much more. This unique program starts this March 2023, so don't wait any longer. Start your transformation journey today and unlock your full well-being potential. To find out more, you can visit their website, which is drsranisuraj.com, and I'll spell that for you. It's D-R-S-R-A-N-I-S-U-R-A-J.com. And there you'll be able to find more information and join this unique program. Okay, and now on to our interview. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mad in America. This is your host for today, Ayurthi Dhar. I am an assistant professor of psychology at the University of West Georgia and a spotlight interviewer for Mad in America. It has been a while since I last interviewed someone, so I'm kind of excited that I'm making this comeback with today's guest, Dr. Owen Hooley. Dr. Hooley is, is an associate professor of sociology at the University of New Mexico. He has written two books and has around 30 publications to his name, but today we're here to discuss some of his writings on the tumultuous and interesting history of psychiatry. The book is called On the Heels of Ignorance, Psychiatry and the Politics of Not Knowing. Great, great uh, title there, first of all. (laughs) So we will also engage with some of his writings on the DSM, some of his critiques, and of course, some of his newer work. Um, Dr. Hooley, welcome to Mad in America. Thank you for having me. I, I just want to say, you know, for, for me, Mad in America, uh, I mean, for many people is, uh, you know, an important platform. Um, and I'm constantly using uh, things that have been posted on Mad America in teaching my students. So I, I think just really delighted to kind of be a part of what MI is doing. We're delighted to have you. And much like you, I use Mad in America extensively. Um, for my students, and it's it's a great resource. Let's jump in. Um, I always ask this question that, um, how did you end up studying um, these things that you're studying? And, uh, you know, for some people, it's like a slow realization. For others, it's a personal experience. For some others, it's like a sudden thing. So how did you end up studying psychiatry, its fault lines, its tumultuous history, and all of this? Yeah. So, you know, and I tell my graduate students, right, not not everybody's research program is linked to their personal biography. Um, but in, in, in this case, my research is, um, you know, I grew up, uh, my father had uh, mental health challenges, you know, major depression, comorbid with substance abuse, uh, you know, multiple kind of uh, suicide attempts. Uh, and I write a little bit about this in the preface of my book. In uh, many ways, I've lived my life and developed myself uh, in the midst of the uncertainty of of mental illness. Uh, You know, I was a kid, so I didn't know what was going on. Like many kids, you know, adults are doing things, uh, you know, stuff was hidden from me, certainly. But the two things deeply ingrained uh, from that experience is one, the 
uncertainty that permeates living or having a loved one who is going through mental health crises. The other was, you know, witnessing the kind of failures of my father to get adequate help. You know, whether that was a failing of his, a failing of his provider, some combination of both, but the problem never got solved, right? Um, so that was, you know, that's a kind of deep formative experience. And once again, on a kind of vague, almost visceral level, the appreciation that not only do I not understand what's going on with my dad, he doesn't seem to understand what's going on with himself, and his providers don't seem to understand, right? And so I don't think it's all that surprising that, you know, fast flash forward 30 years or so, I'm writing a book on psychiatric ignorance. Um, the other kind of moment was, um, uh, I believe it was early in graduate school, where someone kind of flippantly said, uh, you know, oh, well, everyone knows that the chemical imbalance theory is, is a myth or, you know, it's not supported. And it, and it just kind of was a toss away line. I was like, what? <laughs> uh, you know, I've been told this for decades and it, everybody's saying it is and it and everyone knows it's not true. Um, you know, the, this kind of realization at this moment that maybe not quite that the emperor has no clothes, but the emperor's maybe scantily clad like there, there's there's a lot not there. Um, with now the kind of critical capacity to then, you know, begin to interrogate it myself. In your book, which is what we will be first covering, um, you write that the inception of, psycho of psychiatry, that since the inception of psychiatry, um, it has been in trouble and that psychiatrists know it. And in your book, there are several rather harsh quotes uh, from psychiatrists themselves talking about their ignorance, even around what is mental illness, disorder, disease, and how should one go about studying it. Um, I know that in your own words, you say that unlike other medical professions, psychiatry has amassed a frustrating record of failure, of false starts and dead ends. But here is the interesting thing. It continues to persist. It continues to be here and it is resilient. And in your book, you talk about why. So could you briefly kind of answer this question? What has made this profession, uh, which is in continuous crisis, survive and in many ways thrive? Yeah. So, you know, I think the, the core arg argument of the book uh, that I'm trying to make is that the history of American psychiatry, and I want to stress American, um, I think there's parallels with other countries, but uh, this is a very much an American story. Uh, the history of American psychiatry is a history of ignorance. And by this, I mean, uh, you know, psychiatry lacks a kind of basic understanding of the mechanisms underlying mental distress, mental suffering, what kind of whatever mental suffering, whatever terminology we're using. Um, and, you know, one of the things that, that struck me as I was doing this research is the extent to which psychiatrists themselves talk about this ignorance. You know, this ignorance runs deep. It's about kind of what causes mental illness, what causes mental distress. Is it genetic? Is it neurochemical? Is it social? Is it psychological, family dynamics, a host of different mechanisms? So the question for me as a sociologist, particularly a sociologist of a profession, is given this ignorance and given psychiatrists' own acknowledgement of this ignorance, how has it been able to persist? Um, because, you know, anyone who has even a passing understanding of psychiatric history knows that it's a pretty brutal history, 
um, you know, shot through with trauma, shot through with what I like to think of as folly. And so, you know, kind of grappling with this question, I kind of land on two broad causes as to why we see this persistence. One broad set of causes deals with what psychiatrists themselves have done. Um, and I talk about uh, this as the collective management of ignorance. So one of the things that happens is if you look over the history of American psychiatry, one, you know, depending on which era you're looking at, psychiatry looks vastly different, right? And so one of the things is to note is that over its, you know, 150 years or so, if, however we're dating in the U.S., psychiatrists have gone through what I call a series of reinventions. And these are moments when faced with crises pertaining to its ignorance, psychiatric reformers, elites in the professions, essentially reinvent the profession. Um, and that reinvention, and we can, I think we'll flesh this out as we talk about it, that reinvention allows psychiatry to kind of restart their clock, to kind of say, okay, yes, we're in this crisis of ignorance, but that's a problem of the past. We now have hit on this new way of thinking about mental illness, uh, this new way of studying, this new way of treating it, and we're going to move forward from that. Now, if you look over the course of 150 years, there's this kind of constant cycle of reinventions. Uh, so, you know, starting with the asylum period, you get a reinvention to what is called this kind of psychobiological period, and then a reinvention into psychoanalysis, a kind of brief uh, attempt at community psychiatry, and then we're kind of here at the kind of current moment. So this reinvention, I argue, essentially allows psychiatrists or psychiatry to make an important claim vis-a-vis -vis its ignorance, namely that mental illness, although not known yet, is knowable, right? Rather than, you know, mental illness is, is fundamentally unknowable. But, and, and I think, you know, one of the kind of interesting evolutions in my thought in the, over the course of writing this book um, is I don't want to excuse uh, the numerous <laughs> legion of abuses that uh, psychi psychiatry that have been undertaken in psychiatry's name. But I think it's a little bit too easy if we focus solely on psychiatry as a source of the problem. Uh, because I think this, you know, the kind of tumultuous history of psychiatry and its persistence is also related to a collective social failure. Um, that in a sense, we get the psychiatrist, the psychiatry that we deserve uh, by not forcefully questioning it, by also holding some of its issues around the stigma and marginalization of individuals living with mental illness. Um, so it's a combination of, if we're talking about the resilience of psychiatry for me, it's a combination of the various strategies and things the profession has done to manage its ignorance on one hand, and on the other hand, frankly, a kind of collective indifference to the clientele that psychiatry you know, purports to serve. I'm wondering if, if the fact that, so if it was any other medical profession that was reinventing itself continuously, right? I'm wondering if it was somebody would have looked at it and said, you really don't have your shit together, pardon my you know, language, right? <laughs> like how many times are you going to say, we are right there, we are so close, right around the corner, right? But psychiatry has been able to do it over and over. So I am wondering, and this is a critical theorist in me, of course, 
that if it serves a certain purpose for the status quo to, to, or, or something like that, that is, it's able to reinvent itself over and over. What do you think? Yeah. So, you know, as a kind of sociologist of professions, we talk a lot about jurisdictions, right? What, what profession controls what kind of area of work? If we think of kind of psychiatry's place in the kind of jurisdiction of medicine or it, really in the jurisdiction of labor more broadly, it, we have tasked it to take care of or deal with. And I, I want to use the term deal with because I think that's what it, what it's about really. Um, a, a highly marginalized community around which there's not a whole lot of good um, explanations around which there's a ton of ignorance. And so, you know, my kind of talking about this kind of collective failure, the way I kind of see it is that, you know, we, kind of, and we broadly as a society, you know, are willing to kind of hand over the responsibility for the, the, this community. And, and by this community, I think I'm focusing specifically on individuals living with severe and chronic mental illness, um, because there actually is competition for more low-level uh, mental distress among the professions. Uh, but other medical professionals don't want to, you know, quote-unquote, deal with this population. And so we've kind of farmed it out to psychiatry, kind of said, let you handle it. We won't intervene or look into it that much. Um, and in doing so, kind of wash our hands, right? Um, and, and, you know, there's a host of other elements involved here. There's elements around social control, right? Take this problem and control it so we don't have to deal with it. This sounds kind of cynical, and I, I think, you know, I'm critical of psychiatry, um, but, you know, if we're talking about the kind of division of labor around uh, medicine, right? Who, who does medicine give the patients they don't understand, right? One of the places they kind of filtered those patients to uh, are psychiatry. The hubris uh, that you talked about, I wonder if that is related to kind of my next question, um, where you talk about psychiatry as an insecure profession, right? So um, you've said that um, different historians often make the same mistake when they're studying psychiatry. It doesn't matter whether they call the profession good or they call it evil. The mistake they make is that they assume that the profession is, is coherent and somehow put together. And they assume that psychiatrists kind of know what they're doing. But you are saying that um, that's giving too much credit to the profession. Instead, it's plagued with ignorance and it's basically, in your words, muddling through. And I wanted to know more about this, some examples of this muddling through, you know, um, and its insecurity. And I wonder if the hubris is somehow um, connected to the, the insecurity. Yeah, those are uh, that's an excellent question, and and kind of I want I want to unpack it in, in kind of a variety of ways. So, uh, the historian Barbara Tuchman uh, wrote this wonderful book that kind of influences my thinking, not just of psychiatry but kind of human behavior generally, called The March of Folly. And the, and the book is entirely unrelated to psychiatry and, and mental health, uh, but it, in, in a sense, uh, it's a it's a book that looks at kind of government failures, political failures, and political leadership throughout history. And her, she kind of uh, has this account of when historians look back on these events and try to make sense of them, they impose upon them a kind of reason or rationality, right? They want to make sense that why did so-and-so make this decision? Let's get into the head of this leader and figure out how they make the decision. And Tuckman argues that while that makes sense as a kind of analytical technique, 
it has the it can have the tendency of imputing too much coherence than there actually was. Like sometimes people just make bad decisions for not very good reasons. Sometimes there's happenstance and chance that get involved, um, and that when you impose coherent coherence retrospectively, you actually kind of distort the understanding of what 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 actually happened. And to me, that is kind of uh, having read that book. Uh, that really influences kind of the way I think about psychiatry, right? Um, that we, you know, as, as, you know, social scientists, as analysts, we want to make sense of the world. We want to identify patterns. We want to identify coherence. And I think if we look at kind of uh, my intervention in the kind of his- historiography of psychiatry is there is no coherent program here. There is no kind of overarching narrative of progress here. What you see, actually, if you look at the kind of course of this history, is a kind of cyclical replaying of the same problems over and over, right? And so we see this in with treatments. We see this with kind of theories around mental, mental stress. So that's one part of it. And I'll kind of link it back. So to, in making sense of these kind of this kind of cyclical playing out uh, of the same script over and over, I kind of developed kind of develop this notion of reinvention, right? So the story around reinvention in psychiatry goes something like this. Psychiatry has this underlying ignorance. Um, Eventually, it erupts. There's some sort of crisis. Oftentimes, this crisis is due to activism upon, you know, uh, on the, you know, on the part of challengers to psychiatrists. So, but a professional crisis emerged in relation to this ignorance. And the response of reformers is to reinvent the profession. And by reinvent, I mean a very dramatic transformation of the profession. Um, We get new ideas, new theories, new treatments, new organizations and institutions. We actually, they actually redefine what mental distress is right? Fundamental epistemological ontological changes. In order to make those changes and to promote these reinventions, psychiatrists engage in hype, right? Uh, sociologists of technology talk, uh, often talk about what's called the hype disappointment cycle. Uh, that's, you know, a new type, think of, you know, Silicon Valley, right? You've got a new idea, we're going to really hype it up. Uh, so, you know, we get investors, so we, uh, inc- you know, really kind of create a buzz around these things, secure resources. So that's what psychiatry does around its new ideas, right? Now, the flip side to hype is hubris, right? Psychiatrists start to kind of believe the hype and then undertake these transformations in an incredibly aggressive way. And so that's where the kind of hubris is kind of tagged along with uh, with the kind of reinvention. Now, eventually, as these things play out, and I think we're seeing it play out today with psychopharmaceutical medications, is that the sheen begins to wear off. The initial claims to efficacy, right, are, are shown to be problematic. Um, and ignorance once again rears its head, and then psychiatry moves on to the next thing. And so if you take then the picture of psychiatry overall, you don't see a kind of linear progress. You see a profession that's cycling through the same pattern over and over. So let's get a little bit deeper into the reinvention cycle, right? Um, and kind of talk about a, a few a few specific types of reinventions. Um, 
So psychoanalysis first. Uh, you write that um, psychiatry is steeped in ignorance, unable to pin down. It's very at the very basic you, what you call the problem of ontology, even unable to pin down its object of study, right? And even how to study it. So in chapter three, I think, is where you are talking about psychoanalysis and um, you tackle psychoanalysis and how it was one of the reinventions and how the method that psychoanalysis used was called mystification to reinvent psychiatry, right? And save it from ignorance and things like that. Um, in your quote was, mystification is the process of making expertise inaccessible to external judgment. So in other words, if you, are, if you haven't been through analysis for like five years, you can't critique analysis, okay? Can you tell us um, about how psychoanalysis created this whole reinvention and then why did it fail or what, how was there a need for another reinvention? Yeah, so um, what you're pointing to here is that you know, central to the psychoanalytic reinvention is, was this kind of I, this strategy of mystification. Now, mystification, I should point out, is true. All professions mystify their knowledge. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a central kind of uh, element of the ways in which professions assert their authority. So what does this mystification mean? Well, you know, let's say you have uh, an insecure knowledge base. Right. One that uh, one that you have a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of ignorance. We've talked about this as being the persistent theme throughout psychiatry. So the question is, though, kind of what do you do? In, in face of that. Well, one strategy, and, and by strategy, I'm using that term loosely. Right? There was, this wasn't a bunch of psychoanalysis getting around saying, we're going to mystify our knowledge. So, um, so I'm using that kind of a loose term. But one strategy is to essentially remove that problematic knowledge from public scrutiny, right? To hide it, essentially. Um, but in hiding it, uh, you know, uh, imbue it with a kind of prestige or uh, mystique, uh, if you will. So the question is, how does psychoanalysis do this uh, or psychoanalysis do this? Well, psychoanalysis, if you're kind of familiar with particularly its more kind of traditional forms, um, is a form of kind of knowledge production based on interpretations of a patient's subconscious. Right. So already you have a kind of level of removal. Right. It's about this specific. The claims I'm making are about this specific individual. Right. Um, it's an interpretation that is an emergent property of the interaction between the analyst and the patient. Right. So if you're not in that room. Right. You don't understand the dynamics that are happening that are leading to these interpretations. Um, and this is all take, happening behind closed doors, right? So, you know, and that's not unusual. Uh, but the question is then, you know, if you were to try to challenge the claims being made by psycho psychoanalysts, right, you really have little grounds to do so, right? The retort is you're not there, right? You don't understand. Uh, you know, the other notion of psychoanalysis, and this is probably, uh, you know, revealing my own personal biases, uh, you know, it, it's the, the, the knowledge is couched in a particular jargon um, and a set of concepts uh, that um, only those who, uh, you know, are trained in that tradition can make sense of. This mystification, at least for a time, 
allowed psychiatry and American psychiatry embraced psychoanalysis to um, a, a really extreme degree that that's perhaps not duplicated elsewhere. Um, there's a kind of interesting story of the fit of psychoanalysis in the U.S. or its misfit um, in many ways. Uh, but what psychoanalysis afforded psychiatrists at this time was a grounding of their knowledge that insulated their ignorance from public scrutiny. Now, eventually, people begin to ask for evidence, right? Um, and so in the 1970s, beginning in the 1970s, you have, uh, you know, the ins insurance companies are getting increasingly involved in paying for therapy. They want some sort of oversight, some sort of account of the efficacy. Your patient has been in psychoanalysis for two decades. Like, what's the outcome, right? Um, the FDA begins to talk, of, uh, begins to commit to randomized controlled trials as the gold standard of showing efficacy of medical interventions. Well, very hard to fit a psychoanalytic paradigm within a randomized control trial. Um, and so there's this moment in the 1970s where uh, American psychiatrists slash psychoanalysts uh, are kind of presented with this challenge and what to do about it, many of which kind of, uh, you know, say, well, that's not for us. <laughs> you know, we're not even going to try. There are kind of feeble attempts to mend or bend psychoanalytic thinking to meet these new evidentiary regimes, uh, but ultimately they couldn't do so. And then you get the a crisis, and the crisis wasn't just about evidence, right? This is also the emergence of anti-psychiatry movement in, movement in the U.S. Um, but you get this kind of you know moment of crisis that then leads to the DSM and the diagnostic psychiatry that that follows. Absolutely, thank you. thank you. So. Um, post the psychoanalysis, let's get into where you tackle the biomedical model, right? The most recent reinvention, so as to say. And you're right that this is a group of, you know, people kind of following uh, Emil Kriplin's work, uh, movement in psychiatry, psychoanalysis is kind of gone around the time DSM-3 is coming up, right? And the biomedical model is at least implicitly in the DSM-3, even though they say we are completely atheoretical, we do not want to be associated with, it, with the theory, underlying that is kind of this idea of um, psychological distress as a disease and an illness. So um, this most recent reinvention, can you tell us um, what was its promise? How did they popularize this vision of psychiatry that it's a medical branch and we're dealing with real diseases and Currently, how do you see it failing? Do you have any examples or cases of things like that? Yeah, so so go. Let's go back to this kind of period during the 1970s. So you know, we we we've already talked about kind of the problems with the dominant paradigm in, in psychoanalysis. Um, this is also a moment in which you get the emergence of, and once again, there's been critiques of psychiatry and and challenges you know, running through its history. Uh, but the 70s is particularly a moment of flowering around what we now call kind of anti-psychiatry. Um, and this has both its kind of more popular flavors in kind of exposés of mental hospitals, uh, in, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, kind of popular fiction that, that are making these critiques. And it has a kind of uh, definitely a more academic wing as well. Uh, with, you know, Foucault, Goffman, you know, all, all these folks. Um, now, one major element of, of that anti-psychiatry critique focused around diagnosis, 
right? Can psychiatrists actually identify people who have a, a mental illness versus people who don't, right? We get the famous now, I think, pretty much debunked, uh, you know, Rosenhan's being sane in insane place, you know, where, you know, assume, you know, allegedly send pseudo patients to mental hospitals with very vague thing, vague symptoms, and they get admitted, right? So there's a number of, uh, Thomas Saz is talking about kind of, you know, are psychiat can psychiatrists actually identify mental illness? And there's convincing cases that they cannot, right, at the time. And so what you have then is this crisis. Uh, and, you know, as kind of playing out uh, in this kind of continuous cycle, what's going to be the next thing? Um, and this is where I think the story gets really interesting, uh, is that a very, a pretty small group of psychiatrists who self-identify as neo um, led by Robert Spitzer, uh, among others, decided or wanted to reinvent psychiatry in a more, along a more medical vein. Right? Because psychoanalysis, despite constant claims that it was a medical procedure, doesn't look like medicine, right? It doesn't have the same uh, empirical standards. It's, it's a very different, it was always an awkward fit. So we want to, the neo and say, we want to kind of reestablish psychiatry as a medical science. We are going to radically revise the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And we're going to radically revise it in a particular way. And so I'm talking now about the re revisions to DSM-3. The previous uh, DSMs, DSM-1 and 2, very psychoanalytics, psychodynamic in nature, um, rather marginal documents, bureaucratic documents. Psychoanalysts analysts themselves are not that interested in diagnoses, right, because their treatment is based on the speci specificities of the, the, the patient. Uh, so they don't really care about diagnosis. And in fact, one of the reasons the neocraplinians are able to take over the DSM revision process is because no one wanted to do it, right? It's seen as this kind of unglamorous bureaucratic thing. Um, but uh, Robert Spitzer had a vision, uh, and he wanted to use, harness the DSM-3 revision to reinvent the profession um, with an aim towards, the explicit aim of the DSM revision was improving reliability, right? Addressing this issue of diagnoses. Uh, and so they radically revised the text of the document, um, but more so than just the text, the conceptualization of what a mental disorder was. And the mental disorder at as defined in the DSM to this day, is really a list of various symptom criteria that patients need to meet in order to qualify for a diagnosis. And as you alluded to, the, the idea was that these are agnostic towards any kind of causal arguments, right? And, and so the idea was that the DSM would create this formalized, standardized um, uh, diagnostic system based on the criteria that everyone could use, both clinicians and researchers. This would then, so that's the kind of concrete goal, but the kind of broader vision is once we start getting standardized, reliable diagnoses, we could then build a biomedical knowledge base, right? We can now have, you know, I know if I'm doing some sort of biomedical research on major depressive disorder and you're doing it over in your lab, we are stand, we're looking at the same thing, right? And so the idea was that reliability would lead to a robust 
biomedical research program, which would I finally once and for all solve the kind of puzzle of mental illness um, and uh, legitimize psychiatry uh, as, a, as a medical science. Now that hasn't happened. And I think we're still very much in the kind of flux of kind of where this is all going. But to kind of catch up the story to today, Right. Fast forward to DSM-5, uh, which is a revision that happens in, uh, well, the DSM-5 is published in 2013. But in the lead up to DSM-5 uh, is once again, one of these moments where psychiatrists begin to recognize their ignorance, right? 30 years into the DSM-3 research program, we still don't have uh, an understanding of the underlying biological mechanisms of mental distress. Right. We put a lot of hype into genetic science. The genetic science ends up being a mess. Uh, right. It, it ends up, you know, complicating rather than clarifying. Um, neuroscience, still a little bit too premature. But even that showing that or raising the kind of specter that maybe we got off the wrong track uh, with DSM-3. Right. Because at the end of the day, reliable diagnoses do not equal valid diagnoses. Right. Validity meaning it reflects an actual real thing in reality. And so there's concerns among uh, the folks leading DSM-5, David Kupfer, Daryl Regier, and other elite psychiatrists that, you know, we've gotten off the wrong track with DSM-3. Let's try to uh, use DSM-5 to introduce a new paradigm shift. In psychiatry. So in a sense, you know, repeating the DSM story, but for another idea. And that was an important phrase. It's a paradigm shift. And, and they said that early on. Yep. Yes. Yes. Now, it was always unclear as to what the paradigm shift would be. Uh, so initially, they wanted to redefine the mental health, the mental health diagnoses based on the best science of the day right, based on biomedical science, well, that was way too premature. Um, and so eventually what they settled on was they were going to redefine mental disorders from discrete categories to dimensional things, what those things are a little bit vague, right? So, you know, DSM-3 carved out the universe of mental disorders into very discrete categories, right? Take something like anxiety, Well, we no longer talk about anxiety generally, we talk about specific kinds of anxiety. Uh, OCD, um, uh, social anxiety, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, carving out the universe of mental disorder into discrete disorders that are treated as things separate from other disorders and things separate from, for lack of a better word, normality. Well, the DSM-5 said, well, you know, actually, most of the research is showing us that that's not really how things play out, that these things tend to work on long spectrum. So we want to introduce a more dimensional thinking in the DSM. So dimensionality becomes the means by which the paradigm shift were to happen. Now, this didn't happen, right? Uh, because uh, you get a lot of pushback within uh, the profession about the state of its ignorance. And by this, I mean, the question for that DSM-5 folks were grappling with was, was the DSM-3 model inherently flawed or have we just not given it enough time? At least a, a significant proportion of elites in the profession fell into that latter group. We just need to kind of stay the course and give it time. Um, and so you get what 
I think by all accounts, it's a kind of professional disaster um, or, or at the very least an embarrassment um, where you have previous chairs of DSM arguing with the new DSM-5 about how how they're going about this. I interviewed uh, for another project, uh, you know, 30 individuals involved with the DSM-5. It was a very disorganized pro process. Um, they felt like they didn't have much guidance beyond like, do something dramatic with the categories you're assigned to. Um, and so at the end of the day, paradigm shift doesn't happen. DSM-5 looks pretty similar to DSM-3. Um, but then even more embarrassingly for the profession, on the eve of the publication of DSM-5, the National Institute of Mental Health announces literally a couple weeks before the publication that they were no longer going to be uh, using the DSM and that they were moving to a new diagnostic system, which they called the Research Domain Criteria, RDOC. Um, and so, you know, so the DSM, which had been hegemonic, had been dominated, dominating uh, psychiatry for, you know, 30 years, that was seen and one of its kind of major selling points was seen as both as usable for both researchers and clinicians. Now you have the most important uh, mental health research funder saying, no, 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 the DSM is not good enough. We're going to require anyone who wants our research funding to use this other diagnostic system. I, I, I have to mention this because when I read this in your book, it was uh, hilarious to me that you write that in the 19, uh, I think 50s or 60s, NIMH refused to fund studies of, uh, of neo-Kriplandians, right? The biomedical people who weren't really new. And then it was hilarious that in early 2000s, I think they decided to only focus on funding neuroscience research. Yeah, and I think that's, a, I mean, that is a recurring story, right? This kind of massive investment in particular ideas and programs that after, you know, decades don't bear fruit. And I think it raises really deep kind of philosophical questions, right? You know, you know is mental distress knowable? Um, certainly that raises the question is, is it knowable in one way? Right. I mean, you know, medi psychiatry kind of is compelled or has been compelled by the desire to find the explanation, right, that will help make sense to this. Is it about psychosocial trauma that is embedded in the subconscious? Right. Is it about a kind of genetic, uh, you know, genetic difference? Is it about, you know, chemical imbalances in the brain? What is the one one explanation? You know, as a sociologist, you know, I would say stop looking for one explanation. I think I call this in the book, you know, putting all their eggs in one basket problem. Right. You know, it's that you get the hype of the new thing, you invest all your resources into sorting out that new thing, neglecting all the other possible venues that might happen. So uh, all of these reinventions, right? What do you think is the cost for people on ground, for people who these reinventions are, 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 are used for or on? Well, I think the, you know, the major cost, and I think the one we've been talking about is this, you know, is the, the perniciousness of the hype. Right. That leads to, um, you know, wanton experimenting upon mental health patients. Um, you know, 
Hasso, I've been thinking a lot about this with this kind of current moment around psychopharmaceutical drugs, antidepressants, and the discussion. Um, and, and in some ways, the story is personal. You know, I I also was on have taken uh, you know psychopharmaceutical drugs under the premise of uh, you know chemical imbalance theories. Uh, you know, um, explicitly told to me uh, on various cases occasions. And, you know, we, we've conducted uh, kind of, you know, a mass medicating of, of people under really flimsy kind of theoretical scientific premises. Uh, to, to, to be fair, many people benefited from it, right? And many patients benefit from it. Now, we might say that's a placebo effect or we might question why they benefit. But, you know, some people, they, these are drugs that are perceived as, as, as lifesavers. Um, but... I just wonder, um, you know, particularly around all this kind of current discussion around tapering and around uh, questions of efficacy of these medications, kind of what's the social effect of the growing perception that there was this kind of mass deception? (laughs) What's the effect for uh, psychiatrists? But what's the effect for culturally for the ways in which we've made sense of mental distress for the last three decades, um, you know, and, and the ways in which we've invested resources, resources based on that understanding. I'm still grappling kind of what, what that means. I think we're still very much in that moment. Um, you know, the, the sociologist in me will, you know, will say, you know, we spent so much time medicalizing these things that we disinvested in, you know, the social factors and determinants that lead to kind of mental distress. We've undermined the kind of treatment infrastructure by focusing solely on pills. Um, these have kind of mass cascading social effects uh, that I don't think we're fully clear on uh, kind of what's, uh, you know, kind of what that full picture is. Yeah. Um, and for me, one of the biggest costs is how has it changed people's experience of themselves and how they understand their distress and how they story their distress, which now instead of being suffering or sadness, um, being uh, a part of living is is something to be afraid of and to be thought of as a chemically broken brain. Um, so this kind of since we we were, we were talking about pills, um, this takes me to my next question. You write about the success of DSM three, right? Uh, this big thing, and uh, and you said that. Um, "Quote: It was propelled more by institutional fit than intellectual innovation." Um, and then you describe the role of pharmaceuticals and psychopharmaceuticals in the success of DSM-3, uh, the development of Prozac, direct advertising of drugs to consumers. And you write, quote, DSM-3 locked psychiatry in a symbiotic relationship with pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. So, you know, if you think about DSM as, uh, you know, kind of doing DSM-3 doing kind of two things. One is carving out the universe of mental distress into kind of smaller and smaller bits um, and simultaneously uh, producing uh, kind of more, to put it kind of crudely, more ways of being mentally ill, right? Well, what that, that is a kind of goldmine for, for pharmaceutical companies because what it does is essentially defines more markets for their wares. 
um, not just more markets for them to uh, test drugs, uh, you know, to develop drugs to treat, um, but also more markets to reframe uh, existing drugs, right? So, you know, kind of famously Paxil is a antidepressant that does pretty much what Prozac does. Uh, Prozac had already captured the market uh, on depression. So, you know, they, they reform, uh, reframe uh, Paxil as, uh, you know, a treatment for social anxiety. Um, so, you know, the, the DSM and uh, I don't think the DSM, you know, we can't go back in history and, and take out variables, right? But uh, the DSM to me, in my, in my reading, doesn't have the same kind of pack punch without uh, pharmaceutical companies and happening concurrently. So you have the DSM, you have the development of these drugs, but then you also have changing regulations around direct-to-consumer advertisements, right? So then pharmaceutical companies through uh, advertisements now that can happen go directly to the public through television become the the kind of public vocal voice disseminating DSM categories. What's funny is that psychiatrists are really um, sensitive when you bring up uh, the, this kind of you know relationship with pharmaceutical company. You have folks like Ronald Pius who's now saying, no, we never supported the chemical imbalance theory, which is, you know, a cynical argument that's, you know, too cute by half. Like, yeah, maybe the APA didn't come out and say, yes, the cause of mental illness is chemical imbalance, but the entire profession was premised on that idea. Now, what's interesting is what's happening now with, with pharmaceutical companies who, for kind of economic reasons that I don't pretend to kind of, you know, understand and, and scientific reasons, is kind of getting out of the business of psychopharmaceutical med medications as not seeing it as a particularly uh, fruitful uh, endeavor for them as well. Um, you know, and so at a moment when Existing drugs are being increasingly challenged for their efficacy. Pharmaceutical companies are now kind of backing off, which begs the question is kind of where, where does psychiatry head? Because uh, essentially psychiatrists have really narrowed their practice to medication management. Yeah, I actually read that in your book and it kind of made me laugh because I, the couple of times I have interviewed psychiatrists, um, Critical psychiatrists, and they have they have been really sad about the fact that most psychiatrists don't do clinical work anymore, right? Um, but as I was reading in your book, so they kind of went away from doing clinical work, and then a lot of medical management is now done by general practitioners. We know. So where does that leave them? I, I do. I also say in the book, you know, there have been declarations of psychiatrist death, <laughs> death for 150 years, and and. So I think it's really hard to pre uh, predict, but I think you're right. There, the profession is in a, a moment of, I think, if I were a psychiatrist, deep concern, right? Because uh, as you mentioned, uh, they've kind of ceded psychotherapy to psychologists and other counselors. The vast majority of antidepressant uh, or, or psychopharmaceutical uh, prescriptions come from general practitioners. The new hope for psychiatry is neuroscience, but that kind of begs the question, like, why wouldn't it just be then neurology rather than psychiatry if, if the neuroscience pans out? Um, because there is a long history of once we medically can explain a condition, we take it away from psychiatry uh, and give it to someone else. So, or give it to another medical specialty. I, I, it, I think the next 
20 years are going to be really interesting for, for psychiatry. And I don't, you know, I don't pretend to know kind of where it's headed. And okay, Dr. Hooley, that was my last question. Thank you so much. This has been a really great conversation. Thank you. So thank you for listening. And a reminder that we're sponsored this week by Drs. Rani and Suraj, Holistic Psychiatry and Mental Health Coaching. Their unique 12-month coaching program named Beyond Diagnosis starts this March 2023. So to find out more about the program and to sign up, visit the website drsranisuraj.com where you'll be able to find out more and get in touch with Rani. So as always, thank you for listening and until next time, take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.